Hello and welcome to Local Trust Big Local Podcast. My name is Powder Chua and I am a senior researcher at the new Local Government Network. I recently wrote a report, Rebalancing the Power, about how local councils and communities can work together more effectively through the Big Local. My report is available as a mobile-friendly digital download at Local Trust website, www.localtrust.org.uk. Unfortunately, I was not able to be at the roundtable which was organized uh, recently to discuss the outcome of this report as I was on maternity leave. However, my colleague Trinley Walker was able to provide an excellent summary of the report at the event. And here is Matt Leach who chaired the roundtable debate. Welcome to another in the series of podcasts from Local Trust. We're incredibly excited. We've been very excited this autumn to have published a new report in partnership with the new local government network called Rebalancing the Power, which tries to capture what's going on in big local areas, in local authorities with big local areas in them. What's at the heart of it is a shift in perceptions on all sides of the role of local authority and the role of community. We're seeing a move in big local areas to communities seeing themselves as negotiants, people who bring solutions to the table, who look for opportunities to work in partnership. And where that's working best, we're seeing some really profound changes in the dynamics, the interinstitutional dynamics going on. Should we go around the table and allow people to introduce themselves? My name is Trinley Walker, Senior Policy Researcher at the New Local Government Network. I'm Bob Teese, a trustee at Local Trust and uh, run my own business called Practical Governance. Hi, I'm Isabel Edwards. I'm Vice Chair of Podsmead Bid Local in Gloucester and I'm also a Local Council Officer. I'm Carl Croon. I'm the Chair of Arches Local in Chatham. Hi, I'm Shana Roberts. I'm a Chair of On My Big Local. I'm also a Parish Councillor and running for borough elections next year. I also provided the forward for the report that we're talking about. I'm Jessica Studdett. I'm the Deputy Director at the New Local Government Network. I'm Joe Sargent. I'm Councillor for Avonmouth and Lawrence Western Ward in Bristol, which includes the big local area, Lawrence Western. I'm Stephen Perez, uh, Arches Local Resident and Worker. We'll, we'll start today's discussion by perhaps finding out a little bit more about the report. Uh, Trinley, what are the lessons that you learned? Thanks, Matt. Um, I'll just set out a bit of the context to this piece of work. So we know that there are sharply reduced budgets available for councils to deliver services. And at the same time, there is sharply increasing demand for those very public services. We're witnessing shifting public expectations, and this is driven by things such as consumer choice, the impact of smart tech, social networks. People really want to have more of a say over the key decisions which affect their life. So taken together, these factors led to the role of the council as a service deliverer having less impact. And there is a case to be made that the council should shift from a paternalistic deliverer to take up more of a facilitative role and encourage a broader ecosystem of delivery with lots of other organisations playing a role, including community organisations. To look into the issues contained in this research, NLGN took a qualitative approach. So that included 20 in-depth research interviews with people from various big local areas throughout the country, as well as councillors. We also organised a research workshop to debate the same issues and, and look at questions such as what kind of models have emerged in the specific big local areas and what an ideal council community relationship might look like. 
the research found that there were five components of a successful working relationship between council and community. The first of the principles is to recognise what each partner is trying to achieve based on a clear understanding of the particular strengths that each partner is bringing to the, the programme of work. Um, from the council's perspective, it would be beneficial for them to see the big local area as able to provide additional expertise. Big local areas have very fine-grained, detailed knowledge of lots of issues in their areas, which councils might not always be able to capture. The second principle is that of trust and openness. So we heard through the research how big local areas might develop a degree of mistrust where there has been unilateral action taken on the part of the council and also where there have been unrealistic promises made which haven't actually been delivered. So there is a case for agreeing a clear set of deliverables and seeking to build on that initial success to kind of embed trust over time. The third principle is ongoing dialogue and honest communication. So this is really important when the partners involved are navigating a new way of working, which is certainly unfamiliar to the council. And on the big local side, it's good if they can encourage residents to engage in dialogue with the councils. The fourth principle is to take a flexible and adaptable approach. The research identified that big local areas could perceive councils to be overly rigid in the way that they work, um, especially where councils are seeking to prescribe solutions rather than working alongside the communities. This can be challenging for the council where there's a lack of clarity sometimes at the commencement of big local projects. So that requires councils to work in a bit of a different way and to approach it maybe with a kind of blank piece of paper kind of mentality to not be quite so rigid as they might be in other ways of um, service delivery. The fifth and final principle is that of shared ownership and accountability. This really rests on clarity over the value that each party brings to the work. And it's possible to, to agree small actions to deliver and then scale up as time progresses, engaging on the terms of the communities themselves. Big local areas should also be creative in terms of how they spread the message of their work with their local communities and potentially using avenues such as social media. So those are the five principles um, and taken together, they do represent a shift in the way that communities and councils will work with one another. And there's a phrase in the report um, that's applied to councils in that they should seek to operate a grey space where they're not doing everything they might do, but a more select group of actions working mutually with them rather than delivering services for them. So shifting away from a kind of paternalistic approach to a more facilitative one. And then on the part of the communities, they should seek to be very proactive in identifying their needs, communicating those and working with the council to achieve them. Thank you, Trinley. Shana, you're in a probably an unusual position for both a councillor and a, a big local partnership member. You're a, you're a councillor who also chairs a big local partnership, so you're probably quite well placed to reflect on some of the challenges that it highlights. But what's been your experience in Brookside Big Local? I became the chair of Brookside Big Local this February after being a member for about a year, and I joined because I wanted to be more accountable in my community. 
My experience were to begin with is that it was a very formal and very rigid format and there was definitely a sense of hierarchy. There was a lot of councillors who were members and a lot of residents who were put off by the fact that they felt that there was uh, definitely people who were in authority trying to get them to support things they don't necessarily were behind. There was some cynicism, there was some scepticism. And for me, politics or parties or, or anything like that doesn't come in to the big local group. But for me, it's about us having that collaboration and residents realising that their voice can be heard. I think the success now of our big local is the fact that we, there is no hierarchy, that everyone's there to contribute, everyone's there to have their voice heard. We give them a forum where they can have their own opinions, they vote, they make a decision, and they feel like they're being accountable for their community now, instead of feeling like they're being part of someone's agenda or they're you know, using money to fill up council gaps like, like a cash cow. Uh, our last meeting, we had 20 residents who attended, which is probably the biggest we've ever had. And that's because they see what we're able to do now and the fact that they will be listened to. No one actually sees me as someone who has this authority beyond that. In that room, in that group, I'm a resident. And to us, it comes down to one thing, neighbours helping neighbours. And that's been the success of what we've been able to achieve in Brookside. Stephen, it's it's not always that straightforward, is it? I know talking to you about the early days of, of, of the Arches um, local in Chatham, there were actually some quite serious disputes, weren't there? But tell us a little bit about how you found your early engagement with local authorities. Um, when Big Local first came to uh, Medway, the council put a thing in the paper saying, we've got a million pounds to spend. So obviously people came down from what well, I'm guessing was local trust at that point and said, actually, it's down to the people that live there. And the council officer didn't take it very well. I remember being in meeting rooms and slamming tables and doors and saying, you must be crazy giving this money to those local residents. So for about a year, the council never spoke to us. They sort of left us to our own devices. I think they thought we were going to self-destruct or disappear. And unfortunately, or fortunately for us, we didn't. Um, and we're still there and we're still plugging away. But it is interesting talking about the sort of dynamics because sometimes things appear very complex, but actually sometimes things are just very simple. Sometimes you just can't get things done because the people you're working with aren't particularly very nice or helpful. Sometimes you have to either wait for them to go or hope that they change, regardless of what rules or sort of diktat might be in place. So we've sort of learned to be patient. So we have our sort of agenda, the things that we want to get done. We try on the whole to be positive and we try on the whole to be nice to people we kind of find that being nice to people including officers councillors sort of works not all the time because it is a choice so that's sort of our journey so far i guess if you look at the early days of the arches local some of that was was focused on on trying to sort things out that hadn't been sorted out for a long time in the past so the arches themselves were an issue weren't they you know, get, getting rid of the, the remains of the pigeons so they didn't blow over yeah. local children. I guess what, what's interesting to me is the way that an empowered community can change the dynamic in the conversation. It was about a conversation between the council and the highways agency about who should take responsibility for sorting something out, which nobody could quite resolve. And the point at which things started to be resolved uh, was when an active empowered community came onto the scene who were willing to talk about solutions. Is, is that a fair uh, recount of, of, of what you went through in your early days? I think the sort of beauty of Big Local is the fact that it gives you time because we sort of just kept harassing the council, network rail, MPs, social media, change.com campaigns, everybody, anybody, sort of slowly sort of got people to take responsibility. 
in our area, the big challenge was that there wasn't anyone driving change. We were talking about communities becoming disenfranchised. People would moan, but nobody would listen. So people just stopped moaning. So the big local sort of given the community a sort of vehicle to voice their concerns, which has also sort of led to other entities now coming onto the scene as well, which is great. But the council takes an approach with Arches and we sort of have a very good relationship now and they see us as a partner. But there's also other residence groups that are coming out of the woodwork and they're being very vocal and the council's finding it very difficult. They'll come to me and they'll say, can you stop them from saying all these bad things? And I'll say, no, no, I can't stop them. And actually, why would I? You know, if that's how they feel, I think it's a process of all sort of listening to them and understanding why they feel that way. It's built around trust, but I think there is still a sort of a journey to go on in the sense of having a rule that's for everybody, not just for people that you maybe trust or recognise or like. Shana? To me, the most important part of the report was the being able to define what the responsibilities are. And I think that's what causes the most confusion, is that you have a different very state levels of council, and then you have this community group that all of a sudden you're giving, you know, novices a million pounds to spend. And that sense of, well, you're not experts, you know, how do you know what to spend this money on? It's absolutely ridiculous that people are going to give you this. And at the beginning then, there's a lot of um, reticence around, you know, how people work together, how the council works with that. So they either think they can come in and take over, or, or you said in your experience, Archie's that sense of, well, we just won't have anything to do with you then. And for us, it was about big local knowing what responsibilities were, the council knowing what responsibilities were, and the residents knowing what responsibilities were. And I think it's being able to understand that and define that that helps facilitate the relationships. One of the interesting things is we've had years of this idea that communities aren't responsible for stuff and they let others do it and they get frustrated when it doesn't get done. And this sounds to me like big local is starting to change that dynamic where communities are saying, I actually do want to do something about it and I'm not happy just to wait. And councils are realizing that it's not just about their paternalistic approach, but they need to have a conversation. And what's really struck me through what we've heard so far and certainly reflects my own experience is that this is all about relationship. And so what we're tending to find traditionally is very transactional. Here is a particular service we would like your opinion on. Whereas what we're talking about here, because the community has suddenly got some resources and some power and time, that there's a relationship that needs to be built with the council. That means that you can have a much deeper set of conversations that aren't just like one-off or transactional that reinforce that, that dynamic. And I think that's one of the really interesting things, giving that space and time to allow that to build and have vulnerability on both sides. Joe, Bristol have been in some ways in the forefront of exploring that, haven't you? What's driving that change in Bristol? Um, well, I don't want to take it to politics, but it, some of it is due to austerity. It's due to having to being forced into making a decision about reducing staffing. So there aren't the people to actually do things for people. So that means the local communities have a, you know, they have a choice, either they do it for themselves or it doesn't get done. And then we have all the problems associated with sort of neglected um, communities and neglected physical areas. I mean, I was on the train coming up here today and I was chatting to somebody who was sitting in the same seating as me and she actually said, why don't people keep their front gardens tidy anymore? I think that to me was one of the key issues is that they don't feel they have that responsibility. So a lot of them don't own their own homes. They don't have maybe a very secure tenancy. So they don't understand that idea of kind of ownership or sort of, you know, collective responsibility. This is our street, we want to care for it. So I suppose that 
is what we need to try and enable if we want to kind of ride through this period of austerity. But also we should be able to do this in the future, even if we do start to get more funding. So the idea is that if you had a, um, a community that was doing a lot of things for itself, if a little chunk of money came in, perhaps they could have some new equipment or they could have somebody to come in and work and support them rather than actually doing things for them. So I think that's probably the sort of model we're looking at. I know that Marvin, our mayor, Marvin Reese, is very keen on the idea of communities taking ownership of their places. So I think that's the direction we're going in. And certainly Lawrence Weston's a really good example of that, but I don't think that would have happened without the support of <laughs> the big local trust. So, so Isabel, you're, you're in a very different part of the world. I'm not far from not far from Bristol, but if you were comparing the Podsmead estate where, where you've been working to Lawrence Weston, it's, it's a completely different environment, different sorts of challenges. Now, when I visited, there were some amazing things starting to happen, the new, new community hubs, some really great environmental works. And, and you're embedded there as a, as a council worker, but working to the big local, support, supporting them. How, how, does, how does that work as a dynamic? I originally got involved back in 2015. I grew up in Podsmead, went away, lived in other parts of the city. My manager, who was the council rep at the time, said, well, do you want to take my place on the big local partnership because you've got a bigger attachment to the area? I came along and took his place. And then six months later, I ended up moving back to Podsmead. And the partnership quite rightly said to me, well, how do you feel being um, on the panel as a council officer? Would you prefer to do it as a resident? And then you won't have any kind of agenda, you can you can vote like the rest of us. Um, and that felt more comfortable for me. The council in, in Gloucester, they're very keen for more powers to be devoted to communities. So the fact that we've got this budget um, and that we're working on our own priorities um, and doing the things that are right for us and our uh, neighbours is a major tick. It also helps that I, you know, I still work at the council, so if we do need to get things done, I know exactly who to talk to. If decisions need to be made, I can say, look, come on, you're holding us up here, we need to get it done. But the, the change in culture in the council generally, um, with you know supporting more community-led action, it works really well. We're really lucky that we've got such a strong relationship there. Bob? I think there's something really interesting about uh, every time we end up in times of austerity and challenging council budgets, we end up talking more about how communities can take action themselves. Quite often, those conversations seem to start with we need to devolve more power to communities, when actually what is happening is devolving more responsibility to communities without the power or the influence. And what's fascinating for me about big local, um, and even the idea that a council may do their own big local, is that is really transferring power in a way that possibly will actually pay off quite significantly in the relationship, but it challenges all of that kind of dynamic. So it's the difference between a genuine empowerment of community and what was sort of the sorry state of big society a few years ago. There is a challenge in some big local areas around convincing people that big local isn't just the council. In one area, a number of people involved in the big local partnership were shouted out on the buses because it was felt by getting involved in the big local, they were somehow getting involved with the council who were largely seen as, as the enemy. Have we just got a happy group of, of councils and communities around the table or is there a truth there that needs to be acknowledged? Shana, you seem like you want to say something. We had an incident quite recently. We decided as a big local that um, last year in our plan, we'd have an outdoor gym. And so we ran a consultation with residents and we 
put it out there and we went ahead with it. And then the gym got put up and straight away we had backlash from residents saying, why is the council wasting money on this? This is my taxpayers' money. This is ridiculous. And then having to basically educate people saying, this isn't that, this is what it was. In health where I am, we in a very complicated situation where we have a Labour-run borough council, but we have Conservative MPs. And we did find that some of our big local initiatives were being used by candidates as their own for their party. And I had to make a statement saying, you know, there's no political affiliation. And the problem with, with that is it's almost excluding people if they do think it's political based. So we're having to kind of reaffirm and re-educate people in the community and in the council about where we stand and who we represent. So there are difficulties. I, and like I said before, it does come down to understanding what the responsibilities are and for each group to understand we're all after the same goal in the end is to make things better. And the purpose of Big Local is to kind of help facilitate and set those foundations. So moving on 10 years time, you know, the council can build off them and we can all share this success together. And I think people just miss what the long-term goal is. Carl, looking forward five years, funding for Big Local will be coming to an end. What do you think it will leave behind in on your estate and in, in, in the arches? Will there be a lasting change in the way as a community you engage and relate to the council? Hopefully, with the relationships that we're building up at the moment, uh, meeting with various members, we're hoping that will sustain itself. And we are looking ahead already at what we can do to keep the legacy. We want to get things done. And if someone else decides that it's theirs, we're not too unhappy about it. We have branding to a certain extent of our stuff, so people know that we're not council, and hopefully we can uh, use that to move forward. The last voice you heard was Carl Kroon, chair of Archer's Big Local in Chatham, Kent, with a reminder that the potential for lasting change is there if big local areas can get their projects underway. Of course, communicating effectively with local councils is likely to be key to this aim. When conducting the research interviews and roundtable, it was clear to me that for the most part, the agendas and priorities of representatives from both the community and council may not be as different as they first seem. Big local areas that have made more progress also reveal that once they have gone over the major hurdle and communicate clearly and respectfully across parties, they begin to achieve better outcomes. Once there is this recognition, both parties are more willing to listen to the other side, adapt and be flexible. It is also important for stereotypes and presumptions to be challenged and removed. Both parties are often guilty of this pitfall, communities excluding council members because they assume that they want to advance their political agenda. Similarly, councillors and officers treating communities with contempt because they assume that communities are not capable of making the best decisions, so not valuing the expertise of residents in identifying key issues in their areas. In fact, in some big local areas where this rebalancing of power is beginning to improve outcomes, councils are recognizing the value of taking the back seat in helping communities develop greater confidence in planning and setting up their own projects. Now back to the roundtable, which discussed the proposed Shared Prosperity Fund. Matt Leach asked Jessica Studdard, Deputy Director of the New Local Government Network, about potentially new ways of distributing social funding post-Brexit. And this sparked a brief but interesting conversation about legitimacy and accountability in communities. Here it is. 
Jess, I was going to ask you about something that's on the minds of a lot of people in both local authorities and um, civil society, which is shared prosperity funds. So as we look post-Brexit, possibility of eight, maybe 14 billion pounds over the next five to seven years going into communities as a replacement for structural funding. Do you think that there's the scope for at least a part of future area-based funding to be distributed on a big local type basis? Adam Lent talks about big local being the future of public services, which is probably a slight overstatement, and it may be because we commissioned this report. But do you think there are lessons to be learned as government looks to to spend more money in the future? I absolutely think there are lessons to be learned. I think, um, as Trinley had mentioned at the start, the, the context to all of this is not just austerity and the squeeze on public sector budgets, but also rising demand pressures. We're living longer. and We have different requirements that, that follow from that. Poverty is rising and there's particular socioeconomic problems that as a result of that and people expect more control over their lives that's just how they live their lives in a modern world so i think the public sector has to respond to that and this shared prosperity fund it's the replacement for eu structural funds when we withdraw from the european union obviously it's very controversial the the brexit vote itself but um, i think one thing we can all agree on is a big push for the people who did vote to leave was a, a sentiment that they wanted to take back control and i think certainly there has been a decline in our kind of popular culture of the role and efficacy of the expert and the professional knowing everything about what's good for us and what's best for us. So I certainly think there will be a moment when we've left the EU where people will expect to see that control manifest itself in real genuine ways that are tangible. And I think that one of the interesting aspects of the big local model is that by giving this lump sum of funding to people themselves you've just changed the dynamic of the relationship you've catalyzed the relationship there's you've, you've empowered people in a very tangible way not through a kind of consultation mechanism or a kind of informal process but you've literally given them some substance and weight to their needs and demands and that does then change the role of the expert in the council. And actually, one of the things that came through very strongly in the report is that people themselves have real insight into their own lives, into what what's necessary to be changed in their communities. And so I think the big local model itself really does pose questions about how people can have a say over budgets that affect their lives. No one's really marching on the streets to save EU structural funds. No one really knows what they do, but they do do a lot of skills and employment support in communities. We will feel the loss of them. So with the Shared Prosperity Fund, whether they go through LEPs, which are kind of business-led, which I mean arguably really don't have democratic processes built in, local authorities which do have representative democratic processes built in, or whether you could do something more radical where you would say, could you just allocate chunks of money to more deprived areas, whether it's on a micro or more strategic level, I really open up those decision making. So yeah, I think I think the big local model has a lot to lend itself to something that really does let people take back control. Bob, people go to the polls once every two or three years and then give people the ability to then deliver a, a manifesto. And that's one form of accountability and legitimacy. But for many communities, there, there are equally valid forms which come from the accountability that comes from somebody being able to ask their neighbour what on earth they're doing and why they made that decision, or the legitimacy that comes from living in an area for 20 years and, and knowing all the people around it and being trusted by them. When I look at Big Local, quite often it feels to me like it's starting to test and perhaps show the value of that latter form of legitimacy and accountability. It's an area that you work in. How far do you think we can push this when it comes to delivering public services or delivering change in, in local areas? 
formal structural methods of democracy and accountability can offer a certain uh, value, of course, and they're very important. But that kind of more uh, local level, relational based kind of accountability and legitimacy uh, is, is increasingly important, I think, particularly where people feel that that then brings something very immediate and tangible. That accountability is driven much more by the people they talk to and how involved they are in things locally, and a lot less by people coming in and having a vote on, say, the management committee or another body of that kind of nature. So I think we can push it quite far, actually, and I think we should push it quite far, um, but also recognise that, that that's a learning curve. Um, it's not about we have the perfect model and every area will operate in its own way, but surely we need to be looking at all forms of, of accountability, democracy, legitimacy, representation, um, in order to be able to get to models that work in, in local areas and give people that kind of tangible and immediate sense of involvement and engagement. Take one little example, which is something that David Boyle and I actually talked about, which is actually about an organisation which nominally is democratically controlled. It's a cooperative. And so it ticks all the boxes of sort of representation and democracy and the management committee are voted for by local people. Um, and it has a big role to play and partners with the council and so on. But actually, that model doesn't offer any of the accountability that actually happens because half of those shareholders are from outside the area. Um, people don't want to come to the AGM. In fact, they have to be bribed to come to the AGM with food and with entertainment because what they care about is, is that room available that weekend? Are we able to have that partnership um, to build this new thing that we need in our local community? Can you put that service on? And that comes through the conversations and the work that you do day to day, not through people turning up at the AGM. Jess? I'd agree with that. And I think that there's just a different conception of accountability, isn't there? Whether you think of it as something that is kind of vertical and goes up the government food chain and sort of stops at, at Westminster, or whether accountability is shared across a place and you're sort of horizontally accountable to the people you live with. And you, ha you as an individual have a stake in your community and there's some accountability there to your neighbours as well as them back to you. And it's that kind of shared consensus and dialogue and process that I think a lot of the big local areas have gone through to decide and agree and come to compromise about what, what their priorities are. Quite often, what works locally is down to individuals. It's about personalities as much as institutions. If we look at the original conception of Big Local, it was in part about trying to go into areas that perhaps didn't have that critical mass of social capital within the communities. The million pounds was brilliant to enable people to spend on things, but actually it was as important as a way of bringing people together to make decisions about how they wanted to represent themselves as communities. Jess, the next bit of work that you're going to be taking forward for Local Trust over 2019. This um, work has spawned a, a second piece of um, research that we're doing as NLGN with Local Trust, which is looking at the model of, of Big Local, i.e. The, the handing over of a uh, a significant budget to the community to see what would happen if you took public sector spend in its wider sense from the local authority, from other public services, and did the same with budgets that you would hand those over to the community and to see how that could potentially work as a model for much more direct control and efficacy. There, as Matt was saying, there was um, this example in Redditch and Bromsgrove of big local activities reducing demand on statutory budgets in this case the police community support officer because of a reduction in antisocial behaviour. So 
I think there's an interesting potentially preventative dimension to some of this. Some of the activity itself could be leading to a reduction in demand for, for traditional services. So I think we want to explore that link a little bit more and see if we can make a stronger case for why statutory services themselves should be thinking about how they are using their budgets and, and actually giving people much more control over how they're spent um, to stop problems and to nip them in the bud and have more of a preventative approach built into things. So we'll be undertaking that research over the next six months or so and it will be published next year looking forward to that so thank you to all of you for your contributions and very much look forward to responses from those who've listened to the podcast as they read the nlgn report and perhaps engage with the debate online thanks matt that's it for this podcast if you'd like to read the whole of my report rebalancing the power you can find a mobile friendly digital version at local trust website www.localtrust.org.uk where you can also find out more about Big Local and about the new local government network. Goodbye.